When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators, home of NARC Troopers. The title for today's podcast is Searching for Solace in the Dark of Winter. Recovery from relationship trauma is difficult, and older victims encounter even more challenges. So, let's think about the Matrix. Everyone's familiar with that, right? The world has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Morpheus said that. In this popular film, The Matrix, Matrix, there is a choice between two ways to experience the world. These disparate realities are represented by two pills, the red pill and the blue pill. They are popular culture symbols that represent the choice between embracing the painful truth of reality, which is the red pill, and the blissful ignorance of illusion, the blue pill. If you take the pill, the story ends You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Another quote by Morpheus. Life with the narcissist means you choose to take the blue pill every single day, because the blue pill means less pain. It transports you to Never Never Land, drops you down the chute, into the rabbit hole, sweeps you into the vortex that takes you to Oz and allows you to dance among the stars in a musical rendition of La La Land. The blue pill is what keeps you in the shared fantasy with your narcissist, what trauma bonds you to them like cement, and what allows you to minimize the harm they do to your very essence. Eventually, you're going to run out of the blue pills, your yummy ecstasy-infused panacea, and the reality of the relationship, it's going to catch up to you. It'll find you. It always does. But by then, the addiction and the dependency will be very strong, so that withdrawal will challenge even the strongest among you. When they cast you out of their faux heaven, the harshness of the real world will burn you like fire. When the cycle of abuse plays out and the discard happens, you're going to find yourself trapped in a matrix of fear and confusion. Getting free of that prison of pain 
can take longer than most would imagine. To leave that limiting, self-sabotaging matrix and dwell in a place of love and acceptance, it's no easy task, no easy transition. The matrix is not the only allegory for life with a partner with NPD. In Plato's Allegory of the Cave, he describes living in an alternate reality filled with nothing but shadows. When he finally steps into the light, it was overwhelming, foreign, and impossible to believe. Similarly, when I finally stepped into the light after a lifetime in the shadows, everything was upside down. I was Alice emerging from the rabbit hole. I was birthed into a new reality where I had to rescue my wounded child if I wanted to survive. So, the next chapter here, The Fracture. My inner child is a petty tyrant, inconsolable, irrational, unreasonable. I abandoned her over 50 years ago because she seemed to be, to be beyond help and I could not figure out how to ease her fears or, or quell her suffering. When the adult caregivers in my early childhood were unavailable, impaired, abusive, or maybe even narcissistic themselves, it caused a host of problems that, you know, these problems are going to keep following you for the rest of your life. Many developmental benchmarks do not happen and are often replaced with toxic scripting and faulty programming. Some of the messages I received from my mother felt more like a curse or a prophecy than a mother's nurturing. You have ruined my life. I gave up my life for you, and you're such a failure. You're a little whore, ruined, and nobody will ever love you. If you aren't beautiful, then you might as well just die. Your father wants you more than me, and I hate you for that. If you're not the smartest, then you are nothing. Your father left his other family for you, and you have been such a disappointment. I wish you were never born. These were some of the things that I heard when I was young and growing up. During those formative years, those were the messages that I was being programmed with. Something just snapped and broke inside of me with each piercing accusation, with each wicked curse, with each venomous declaration of contempt. But instead of silencing the terror by cannibalizing myself like my narcissist husband did in a similar dangerous childhood circumstance, I just tried harder to be the smartest, the prettiest, the most talented. Only through these avenues could I receive any validation and actually be recognized. So I finished at the top of my class, performed lead roles in ballet and theater, dazzled people with my exotic beauty. The bone-crushing curses faded away. When I achieved these marks and, and received honors and acclaim, but it was a hollow victory. I couldn't fit into a world where I was so much smarter than most of the people around me. They had little interest in academic discourse and 
thought me strange for being so erudite. The girls were all threatened or envious, and the boys all wanted to grope me and bed me with no interest in who I was or what I knew. It, I was an odd duck, still broken and empty, always alone, even when surrounded by countless people. Next chapter, Diving into the Wreck. Adrian Rich wrote this. She said, I am having to do this, not like Cousteau with his assiduous team aboard the sun-flooded schooner, but here, alone. That's a quote from a really great poem called Diving into the Wreck. And, you know, it became apparent at some point that I selected partners who were mentally impaired like my mother, and each one brought the same inability this inability to see me, hear me, feel me, or most important, the ability to love me. My first marriage failed with a brilliant doctor who also happened to be paranoid, schizophrenic, and alcoholic. Second relationship in my life dragged on for many years with an impaired man who could really not function in the real world and spent his life walled up in his little fortress that shielded him from the, from the terrors of the world. But you know, it was the third and the last love that was the defining relationship for me. The one that was powerful enough to destroy me completely. I was in my 40s when I met this younger man and it was transformational in every way. Like a forest that burns to ashes and regenerates again stronger than before, I perished in the fire. And that complete annihilation is what, re de it's what deconstructed everything that I ever believed about myself or my life or the world that I lived in. Only him, Mr. Pescata, was the one who became the transformational catalyst for everything. Only he, a narcissistic psychopath, was capable of waking me up to do the work that I needed to do. Adrian Rich goes on to say, This is the place. And I am here, the mermaid whose dark hair streams black, the merman in his armored body. We circle silently about the wreck. That's Adrian Rich, her words. And so he and I, Mr. Pescata and I, Miss, Mrs. Pescata, we dive in, we go deep, we try to figure out what lies in the wreckage of our inner selves, the little child inside that suffered such torment and shame and fear. We have to dig around and search for these things. The narcissist 
destroyed their authentic inner self. They ended their suffering the only way they knew how. Kill him, or if you're a female, kill her. And create a false version of yourself that is perfect and fearless and shameless and gorgeous and powerful and will never ever let anyone hurt you again. But not all victims of tragic childhoods become narcissists. Some of us react in other dysfunctional, maladaptive ways to achieve some kind of safety and emotional regulation. We become helpless and dependent upon others. We become hyper-empathetic and healers and pleasers and performers. We learn to compensate and compromise. We attach in unhealthy ways and have no boundaries in our desperate attempts to be loved, to be seen, to be heard. Both reactions in childhood to the harm that we experienced are adaptations of our true selves. Both, whether going the narcissist way or going the codependent way, you know, both of these alter the way that we interact with others in a destructive and self-sabotaging way. More words from Adrian Rich. She says, well, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. I want to wait. I want to save this. I'm thinking I want to read this, but hold on. I want to tell you something else. When we become adults and we're diving into this wreckage to try to find clues of treasure or, or a cure or whatever, and we're swimming around in circles year after year, not understanding what to do with all the debris and the ruin, it just sits there inside our bodies in the deep seas of our forgotten selves. I'm going to hold off on the rest of that poem because I want you to think about what I'm saying here about the diving into the wreckage. And I invite you to look up that poem, spend a little time with it. It's really good. Next chapter, the evolution of self. There's a song by Natalie Merchant called My Skin. She says, take a look at my body. Look at my hands. There's so much here that I don't understand. Your face saving promises, whispered like prayers. I don't need them. All right, let's let that settle with us for a moment as we go on. And so sometime during the past two years since I was discarded in June of 2019, I stepped into the winter of my life. You see, I didn't know that I was old, <laughs> that I was an older woman while I was married to my younger man. And when he was in his 20s and I was in my 40s, it just didn't seem too off. I mean, it was a little bit weird, but as you know, when he was in his thirties and I was in my fifties and there was such a huge gap between us, um, the, you know, it, it, it was a thing. And if he had not been so dysregulated, seeking like a mother proxy to parent him, 
in the most profound of ways. And let me just say, even if I had been 10 or 20 years older than him, uh, or younger than him, rather, even if I had been 10 or 20 years younger, I still would have functioned in the capacity as parent because the narcissist parentifies their partner absolutely every time, regardless of their age. So it was just a coincidence that there was that space between us uh, that had nothing to do with how the cycle of abuse played out and how the roles that we each played in that relationship played out. The age factor really was just a wild card. It wasn't the thing that deconstructed the relationship. He was a narcissist and it was doomed to fail from the very first day, from the very first word spoken, from the very first everything. It was doomed. It was doomed to fail. Um, so after he left, I think I aged 20 years in a couple of months. It certainly felt that way. My mind, my body, my spirit, all of it suddenly just rapidly aged. And, and I arrived in the winter of my life. I'm past 60 now. And, um, you know, when, when I felt the youth, the hope, the excitement of planning a fresh future that was just waiting to be manifested. Um, and I feel it slipping away now these last two years, much of the time now, I no longer feel the heat of my passion and purpose. The cold has settled in to those spaces within me. I remember what is lost and I long to recapture it, but with this failing body, not with these withered dreams, I'm alone and I feel the solitary wilderness stretch and spread within me separated from the feverish and frenetic speedway of youth that I had known just in such a recent past. Natalie Merchant says, well, contempt loves the silence. It thrives in the dark with fine winding tendrils that strangle the heart. They say that promises sweeten the blow, but I don't need them. It's a great song. You should listen to this. So many promises and so many lies from all the people who were supposed to love me my whole life. Love me without contingencies and without conditions. So much betrayal, disappointment, heartbreak, and despair. For the 15 years I was married to my narcissistic psychopath, I believed that my dreams had finally come true. I believed that. It was so real. Most of our lives together seemed like everything I had ever wanted and dreamed of. And, and I learned so quickly to look away, to turn my head, to turn my back when he acted out when he committed sins against me, against us, 
against my family, against everyone. I just popped those little blue pills like Pez candy and marinated in this shared fantasy and ignored it, denied it. Natalie Merchant says, do you remember the way you touched me before? All the trembling sweetness I loved and adored. Your face saving promises whispered like prayers. I don't need them. So all of the despair and loss and heartbreak has had an unexpected benefit. Benefit. When I believed that there was no coming back from something so catastrophic and inhumane, when I felt that I had been gutted without any chance of survival, I fell to my knees and I begged God to end my suffering. I had hoped I would die. I hoped that my heart would just shrivel up and go to sleep inside my chest, and when the sun came up in the morning, I'd be gone. But God did not answer my request as I had imagined. At first, I rejected the idea that God was going to use this as an opportunity to help me finally heal and heal the deep wounding that I had received as a, you know, from my crazy mother and my absent father. The key, the answer, the remedy to all of this injury and toxic milieu was, you know, right there all along. It was to turn inward and identify the pieces of the inner self that needed attention. You know, I've tried hundreds of things to recover. Many of them were helpful and allowed me to get closer to wellness. But along the way, I learned something. I learned that if I had to go find that part of me that is still terrified, still believing I can't live without my husband, still accepting the injunctions against my happiness from my mother, from the wholeness that, that was, you know, injected in me like a poison, like a curse, like an evil curse. Um, I realized I had to go find her and rescue her. You know, I needed someone to validate me and make me feel complete. But I learned that the only way to be truly healed is to figure out how to do it by myself. Recently, I asked God to come into me and show me that I am not alone and that I do not need a physical or emotional relationship with another human to feel complete or to be happy. What I need was a more spiritual connection. No external validation, just me, myself, and God. His divine light entered through the top of my head and I walked down a tunnel through my third eye that opened to a consciousness that was not of this world. In this meditative um, state that I was in, and I did this under the um, guidance of uh, a friend of mine, who's come to be a friend of mine who who does this, this kind of work to help people. It's like soul retrieval sort of stuff. Um, you know, she was with me, walking me uh, through this, through this, this thing. And um, 
So I I had visions. I, I guess they're visions. Not really. I, I it felt so real. Um it was so real that I did not feel it was a vision. I felt it was actually happening. This this meditative state, this going into my third eye, this retrieval of what was deep inside of me. And I what I asked, I said, God, show me something. Show me something. What do you need me to know? What do you need me to know? So I went into this tunnel and suddenly I was traveling to the forest and the ponds in Massachusetts and I lifted my hand to feel my youngest son's soft, smooth hair. And then I went to the open fields that stretched endlessly as the wind blew and I cradled my oldest son and put his head in my hands and held him. And then I saw palm trees and bright sunshine in my beloved California ocean. And in an instant, my daughter was beside me and I felt her tiny little fingers holding my hand. Cold tears were flowing down my face as I reached for my husband next. Two years gone, but never really gone very far. I held the back of his head and felt his short black hair, smelled his skin, absorbed his energy. They were all so real, all four of them. And right there beside me, there was such a peace um, as I kept just moving from place to place. I think God was showing me a type of consciousness that I will have after I die. I will have them these four with me, these four people who are part of me, the most important people of my whole life. And grandchildren, too, will run and play in the distance, and, and I will feel it in a very real kind of way. I will experience every sensation, and I will never be far from them. Most importantly, I am not alone. God is with me, and they are always going to be with me, part of me, part of everything. I'm no longer a young woman, but regardless of whether God takes me soon or if I'm left here to do my work as a teacher, as a teacher for life, it doesn't matter. These last two years have been transformational, filled with growth and change and healing all resulting in a stronger faith and closer relationship with God. A higher power once said, give him back. He belongs to me, not you. And he was talking about how I tried so desperately to cling on to my husband, to heal him, to fix him. And this, this voice said, turn to me. You are not alone. I am with you. There was a time when I didn't need God or seek him. I had everything I wanted in my husband and our lives together. But maybe God wanted to take me from that 
to prepare me for something. For death, maybe? For a new life, maybe? For something different or better? Or maybe something real? Because what I had with my narcissistic husband was never real, not really. I am called to be a teacher. 45 years in the classroom, and I'm still doing it this year. But I also have other things to teach, to bring people relief from suffering, and to connect them with Source, with God, with Spirit, with this stronger vibration and more powerful existence. I'm called to educate them about narcissistic abuse and about the soul-destroying aftermath that follows. I am called to teach them how to get up off the ground and to get free from their past and from their demons. I lost so much. The man I loved more than life itself and so much more. Relationships, family. But I also gained so much. The integrity of my soul, inner healing of my fractured spirit, trust and faith that if I surrender to a higher power, I will be guided exactly to my destination. Happy trails, everyone. And please remember, on this journey, if we keep going and we reach for the right things, and we have the right open mind about what is happening, we will be healed, we will be whole, and we will be happy once again. Much love, guys. See you next time.